Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. When we talk about data and AI ethics, we typically view this through a privacy lens. That is, someone's personal data has either been compromised and ended up in the wrong hands, or personal data is used to manipulate or create adverse outcomes for individuals or minority groups. These factors are still fundamental to AI ethics, but there is now a big focus on the broader societal impacts of AI, including human rights, data privacy, and using AI for good. Enter the concept of data pollution. The data pollution paradigm describes how the use and intentional or unintentional sharing of personal data can create societal harm not just private harm affecting only the individuals included in the data set. To understand the concept of data pollution and its impact on individual privacy and society as a whole, I recently spoke to Gianclaudio Malgieri. Gianclaudio is Associate Professor of Law and Technology at the Augmented Law Institute of the EDHEC Business School in Lille, France. He's also co-director of the Brussels Privacy Hub, lecturer in IP and data protection, and an expert in privacy, data protection, intellectual property, law and technology, EU law, and human rights. In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, we discuss the evolution of data and AI ethics over the last 20 years, why data protection is so important to the future of our society as we know it, what data pollution is and why we should care about it, what we can do to create data sustainability, what business leaders, legislators, and legal professionals can do to deal with AI sustainability issues and much more. Let's get to it. Here's Gianclaudio. Gianclaudio Malgieri, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. It is fantastic to have you on the show today. Thank you very much, John. It's my pleasure to be here. And we have a really interesting and thought-provoking episode ahead because we're talking about something that I believe you and I both find very important in the data space, but also underappreciated. And it's really about making AI sustainable. So that can mean many things to many people. In this interview, we'll be talking about ethics, privacy, and also the concept of data pollution. That might be something that listeners haven't heard about before, but at the end of this episode, you will know much more from one of the experts on this topic in the world, which is Gianclaudio. Now, Gianclaudio, before we get to that, we want to learn a little bit about you and your background. So in your own words, could you tell us a bit about yourself, your career background, and what you do? 
Sure. I am a researcher in law and technology. I am an associate professor of law and technology at EDEC Business School, the Augmented Law Institute in Lille, in France. And I have also the honor to co-direct the Brussels Privacy Hub. Brussels Privacy Hub is a research and dissemination platform within the Freie Universiteit Brussel, the Free University of Brussels. In addition, I conduct research and teach on um, data protection law, privacy, AI regulation, data sustainability, consumer protection, and intellectual property, mostly in the digital space. I am also external researcher, external expert for the European Commission, and I am in the editorial board of some law and technology journal. Basically, this is me in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, so quite a deep and broad remit across academic research and applied regulation as well through the European Commission. So really interesting background that we will learn a lot from today. Now, I'm interested, how did you get into this space of data and artificial intelligence in the first place? Because you're a legal professional by background. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Exactly. Uh, even though I am a legal um, expert uh, by background, I've been working with computer scientists in the last uh, at least five years. I've had the pleasure to publish on computer science journals. Why? Uh, when I started, basically my interest for data, data protection was very early in my research and in my studying. I think that data, the challenge of data, the challenge of uh, technology, and regulation of technology was one of the biggest challenges that even the law had. I started to do some uh, independent research uh, after my uh, university studies when the GDPR was uh, under the first discussion, the first proposal. So the um, discussion in Europe was starting to be on data protection, actually. So for me, it was an interest that came and grew and grew and grew and grew. And then uh, artificial intelligence became the keyword because, of course, the GDPR, data protection, is also a way to understand how we could regulate automated decision-making. You know, technologies are everywhere and decisions are always automated. So for me, the challenge was, do we have a right to explanation? Do we have a right to understand what's happening? What to do with black boxes? And so with that challenges, I, I became more and more interested in discussion with computer scientists, how we can open a black box, what is AI, how AI can decide for us, not just legal, but also philosophical perspectives. And so that's how I started on these topics. Yeah, very interesting. So you do have an appreciation for both sides, if I may call it that, of the development of the, the technical components of AI and, and the computers that sit underneath and the technical challenge, but also the, the ethical and philosophical challenge of just because we can doesn't mean we should and uh, all those things. This really brings us to what we're going to talk about today, which is making AI sustainable. Gianclaudio, the thing that I think about when I think about this space is that the early conversations on, if I may call it AI ethics as a, as a broad topic, was really around model accuracy, explainability, and interpretability of models. So we can actually understand why we've predicted or, or produced the output that we have. These are still fundamental factors in AI ethics, but there's now more and more a big focus on the broader social impact of AI, human rights, data privacy, 
and using AI for good because it can also be used for bad, as we will probably talk about later because we're seeing that in war zones and other places at the moment. So there's been quite an evolution in this space. Could you describe to us the evolution over, say, the last 20 years or so in this space of AI ethics? Sure. So, as you said, Jonas, the um, computer scientists already tried to investigate accuracy, explainability, interpretability. But my question is, why? Why should we wonder? Why should we uh, ask about explainability, interpretability, accuracy, etc.? Not just because we want better utility from AI, but also because we want that AI could respect human values, legal values, fundamental principles and fundamental rights. So every principle, like the ones you mentioned, like accuracy, explainability, etc., have a role, have a purpose for humans. Uh, accuracy is a guarantee against biases and discrimination, for example. Explainability gives a dignitary justification to algorithms, because if uh, I can explain, if I can understand and interpret algorithms, I can uh, contest them and have better decisions. As you said, in the last years, I, I think mostly in the last 15 years, 12 years, the attention on human and social impact of AI has grown a lot. Uh, why? Uh, first of all, because of uh, social technical changes, of course. Now we use AI to make so many different decisions in many different fields. Before, I mean, the use of technology was based on repetitive actions. Now, technologists can really take meaningful and impactful decisions on our life in many different sectors. And also, think of the importance that now social media have, for example. Content moderation and online behavior advertising is all based on AI, and they really influence our life. In addition, what I would like to mention is that there were several scandals in the last years that made us feel the urgency to look at the social impact of AI. Just to mention some, Cambridge Analytica, for example, the case is, is very emblematic because uh, Facebook data were used to manipulate electoral choices of people the impact on democracy. We can say similar things for other decisions like uh, Brexit and so on. But other important scandals, for example, the Compass case in New York City, they were using algorithms to predict the risk of recidivism of uh, accused people. And it was clearly biased against Black people. So I think that all these scandals brought the attention of scholars up and made this discussion urgent so that also legislators started to really think at meaningful ways to regulate it. We have the GDPR, we have other things, we will have the opportunity to mention them. In the US, the discussion is a bit uh, slower <laughs> in terms of legal reforms. But yes, I think that mostly in, the, in this last 20 years or 15 years, there was this, this increase of discussion. Yeah, if you're a regular listener on this show, you will know that I have previously called these sorts of events the digital equivalent of oil spills because they are really sort of a haphazard or a silly experiments that spill data all over the place and uh, have real consequences for other humans. We need to treat it with that same respect as we do with oil platforms digging stuff out of the sea and, and all the rest. So 
I'm interested in really sort of getting to the core of what data protection is. And I'm going to not do that by asking you what is data protection, but in a slightly different way, ask you the question, Jean-Claudio, of why is data protection so important for the future of our society as we know it? Well, yeah, I think this is a great question. I'm wondering why is the first step to understanding how important is it? So basically, data protection, I think, is uh, essential for the future of our society for different reasons. First of all, the respect of democracy. A society, a legal system that can respect personal data of individuals is a legal system that is uh, generally well equipped to protect democracy, its own democratic system. If surveillance is indiscriminate, if um, police surveillance or police data processing or political uses of, of personal data have no restrictions, of course, uh, the democratic system will suffer. And we have many examples around the world. Think at systems in which data protection is not adequately protected through laws. Usually, these systems have no good uh, democratic structures. It's quite evident. So this is the first reason. Uh, second reason is that it's something more subtle, more subliminal. If we protect our consumer experience online, we are protecting our mental freedom. So it's not just electoral purposes, electoral issues and democratic issues. It's the bigger picture of our identity as users, consumers, online citizens. Now everything, even after COVID, everything went online. Everything was digital. There was a great increase of the use of digital identities, for example, during COVID times, during pandemic. The fact that we most of public administration services were digitalized if they were not already uh, digitalized. This made data protection even more urgent. So basically, in a nutshell, democratic reasons, but also the protection of our identity as consumers, as citizens, as users, and so on. Data protection in a nutshell is rebalancing power imbalance. And as you said, if data is the new oil, the big data collectors are the new capitalists, and we need to protect our identity and our powerlessness, if you allow me this term, looking at uh, this power imbalance. And data protection might be a good tool. I absolutely agree with you in terms of these very large corporations collecting huge amounts of personal data on, on individuals being a real risk to society, uh, if not kept in check. And we can... Uh, only to some extent rely on them being the good guys. That is uh, these supernatural co corporations, but also for nation states, uh, we have the same challenge. Uh, that's a little bit harder to regulate because nation states typically re regulate themselves, but uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Before we delve into those topics, I am interested in a new concept that you've introduced to me, which is when we talk about uh, the misuse of personal data, we typically view it through a privacy lens. So that is someone's personal data has either been compromised uh, and ended up in the wrong hands or personal data is used to manipulate or create adverse outcomes for individuals or minority groups. So it's sort of very personal to an individual. But you also talk about the concept of data pollution, 
which is much broader. Could you explain to us what data pollution is and why we should care about it? Sure. Thank you for the question, because I think this is very, very uh, key question. Data pollution actually was a term invented not by me, but by Professor Omri Ben-Shahar in um, an article published uh, three years ago on Journal of Legal Analysis. I think that powerful concept can be exploited more in the future. Data pollution uh, basically is the idea that, again, Is data is the new oil, oil pollutes a lot. Fuel, oil, gas, they pollute, right? And data can also have a negative externalities on the digital environment. So the reason why I started to analyze data protection also from the data sustainability perspective was a personal reason also because... Uh, I am a legal professor in a business school, and we have many courses there. One of them, and even many master's programs, one of them is sustainable businesses. So they asked me whether and how I could see myself in that program. And they said, yes, data protection is also a matter of sustainability. So just to explain you why data pollution, we can make a comparison between physical environment and digital environment. And in the physical environment, of course, we need uh, oil, we need energy, and energy has negative externalities on the uh, environment, producing climate changes and so on. But also the digital environment can be polluted. The same energy, which is data, personal data, non-personal data, and so on, have externalities. In particular, if we process personal data in a way that is not respectful of uh, democratic values, individual rights, fundamental principles that, of course, are based on legal concepts, but legal concepts that we can, we can have a minimum agreement, at least, on what are the good values for the protection of personal data. Well, if we do that, there might be some externality on democracy, on um, transparency, on uh, freedom and individual rights. So data pollution, in my view, means having a digital environment where the processing of personal data, even non-personal data, is non-regulated and creates paradoxes and uh, forms of underprotection for the most vulnerable data subjects. If we process personal data without any restriction, if we sell personal data without any form of autonomy or dignity consideration for individuals, this means that the digital environment will be polluted, polluted in terms of uh, less trustworthy less democratic, even the, the society in general. So for me, data pollution and data sustainability is a, a way to look at this perspective from a sustainability discourse. And just to conclude on this, I would like to say that data sustainability is not just about obstacles and burdens. Data sustainability means that companies can have profit from processing personal data. And data protection is not just an externality, is also an advantage. Because if the processing of data is more accurate, more purpose-limited, is more necessary, and so all data protection principles are respected, companies can grow 
can grow in their reputation, their trust portfolio, their relationship with consumers. So this is what I would like to say. We can have a good environment, a sustainable environment in, uh, online, which means respecting fundamental rights, respecting public interests like democracy, public administration, etc., well-functioning of public administration, and profit for businesses. Very interesting. And I have a lot of images of what I think data pollution is and unsustainable use of data. Could you give us a very practical example of data pollution to really sort of make it crystal clear for listeners what you mean? We can make many examples from real stories to non to, to possible dystopian dystopic scenarios just to make a couple of examples data pollution might be for example you participate in a, a medical research project as a volunteer and after two weeks your insurance raises your premium because they discovered from that research that you have higher risk of dying next year. And so your life insurance has a higher financial risk. Data pollution means, for example, that the choices that you make online are influenced by other digital footprints that you left before in your digital experiences. Data pollution means, for example, you receive, just to make examples that are a bit not so well known in you know in literature just to make an example you just lost your dog or a relative or whatever and then you start being exposed to online advertisement that refer to the fact that you are in grief even for things are related for example advertisements about shoes about I don't know, bags, cars, but you keep seeing the fact that there was a father and a son, a man and a dog, or whatever. So the fact that information that you didn't, that you were not aware they knew about you, are used against you. So in in a nutshell, for me, Data pollution examples is any form of exploitation on on individual vulnerabilities based on your personal data. And vulnerability can be manipulation, can be discrimination, can be stigmatization, stereotyping, and so on. Of course, it's difficult to make specific examples, but I tried to give some. Yeah, very good and very helpful. Thank you. One of the examples that's going around in my head is A recent example that's really come to light during the Russian-Ukrainian war, because we have an example here of a company called Clearview AI, which is an American facial recognition company. They produce law enforcement software that can recognize faces with a very high degree of accuracy, uh, more than 99%, based on the collection of billions of images from the internet, right? So they've scraped social media and, and other places to get this information. And you and I are probably in the database. It's very likely if you have a Facebook profile or LinkedIn or or something like that, you're probably in the database. And they're obviously using the images from here uh, associated with the names and identities that they've collected in the same exercise to recognize individuals that they can get from pictures or images or uh, CCTV or, or something like that. And this software has been used to catch bad guys from surveillance footage and identify soldiers in Ukraine. And you might say, oh, well, this is actually 
a good purpose and it's worthwhile and it's helping society. But it's also a problem on the other hand because no one in this database have actually agreed or consented to being in there and their information is uh, because they put it on Facebook with a picture, then all of a sudden they're in this database you're being used for many other purposes uh, without their consent or even uh, knowledge thereof. Um, is that a, a real example of data pollution? And if so, how do we deal with this sort of gray area? How do we determine whether something is ethical or not in this uh, scenario? Yeah, uh, this is absolutely a great example. The um, tension is between autonomy of individuals and public interests, the example you made. Giving consent for something it means guaranteeing people's autonomy on their personal data or on their digital life. On the other hand, we have public interests. So should we always base data protection on consent? Because this is the main one main issue. And every time we don't use consent, are we polluting the digital environment? Are we data polluting? I would say the trade-off, the balancing between autonomy and public interests doesn't mean that we always need to use consent. We can have public interests legal basis for processing data. We can process data on the basis of laws without consent of people. The GDPR and even before the Data Protection Directive in Europe, we are very clear on that. The point is that there should be other safeguards and other protections to make sure that individuals are protected, even if they didn't give their consent. For example, there should be a right to object to the data processing, so right to block the data processing that is going on, right to receive explanations, transparency, fairness. Fairness is a very underestimated concept in the data protection law. We have it in many different data protection laws around the world, not just the GDPR. What does fairness mean in practice? You mentioned um, ethics and sustainability. Fairness is a difficult concept, but the final goal is exactly ethical and sustainable data processing. Fairness means making sure that uh, the data controller, that, that can be the state, the army, private companies, don't abuse of their power imbalance. And so how can we protect them? How can we deal with this situation? I would focus on the notion of risk. The GDPR and other regulations about data protection and AI are risk-based. So first we start from risk. What is risk? Risk of fundamental rights and freedoms. We try to anticipate these risks. And once we have them clear in our mind, we look at necessity and proportionality of our measures considering the risks for individuals. And then we decide whether certain data processing activities can be done or not. It's like in environmental law, before building a new building, we have to understand what will be the risks on impacted population, etc. And then we try a balance, right? So uh, for the example you made about Clearview AI, well, first we should analyze what risks this can have and what benefits, right? And in order to understand risks, we should understand what are the possible harms. And it's not clear. There's not a list of harms that AI can produce. So of course, it's a bottom-up approach. 
bottom-up exercise that can have a lot of problems, issues, drawbacks, but at least we should try. And data protection legislations are already suggesting and recommending these kinds of practices. So yeah, difficult to do in practice, but we have the principles. We should work on these principles. Yeah, and I think we also have to recognize that a lot of these questions are very novel to human beings. They're actually stretching our brains a little bit. We, we haven't sort of come across them before. So it is hard to identify the right path through the legal frameworks and through also, as you mentioned, the, it's hard to determine what is what fairness and, and, and how do we measure that up and how do we think about it? It's something that we haven't had to think about at such a big scale before. We might have to deal with fairness every day with a small group of individuals or in a, in one-to-one situations, but not for, for millions of people in, in a way where the algorithms are making decisions. It's, it's very new f- to us as a human race, these sorts of questions. So I'm interested, what do you think about our current data protection frameworks like the GDPR that you've mentioned? Are they adequately equipped to deal with the individual as well as the collective interests? Well, I think so. I think GDPR and similar data protection legislations of other countries, like, for example, the UK GDPR, or data protection in other parts of the world, like Brazil, Japan, Israel, and so on, Switzerland, they are based on this complex balancing exercise, individual interest, public interests. So I think, I think yes, and we see it in many different parts. Uh, first of all, as I told before, as I said before, it's not just consent. You have other legal basis, including public interests. Second, individual rights like right to be forgotten, the famous right to be forgotten, is not an absolute right, but should be balanced with freedom of expression, journalistic purposes, and so on. Even uh, research. Uh, many people said GDPR can block research, research in the public interests. We saw it was fake news. It was not true. COVID research were possible even through the GDPR and thanks to GDPR, because you can do research even on sensitive data, so health data, medical data, etc. if you just respect some safeguards. And you don't need consent of people, but you need to protect those data through some safeguards, through transparency, through risk assessment, and so on. So this is like, a, how to say, intellectual revolution, intellectual change. Forget about consent and consent or notice and consent. And let's start to consider a dynamic and continuous risk assessment approach. I think this is the best way to take into account public interest and individual interest. Yeah, that's a really interesting concept because I think when a lot of people give consent to the use of their data, they're actually not really sure what they're consenting to. And it's not necessarily transparent. Even if those seeking consent are trying to be as transparent as possible, it's actually really, really complex, typically what they're trying to do. And for the layman out there, they might not understand that. That is a really uh, interesting concept of this sort of continuous risk assessment. How do you see that being used in practice in the use cases that you come across? Well, empirical uh, reality is not so good as we could expect. Risk assessment in practice is carried out very superficially, even in European Union countries. So in principle, risk assessment is a powerful tool. In practice, data protection impact assessment and data processing risk assessment are not taken 
into serious account, not because data controllers don't want, or not just because they don't want, but because it's difficult to assess and quantify risks. That is a purely economic concept, right? A management concept for fundamental rights that are purely uh, abstract and uh, humanistic concepts, right? How can you quantify the risk that certain data processing techniques or data processing activities can have an impact on your freedom to speech? How can you quantify into numbers? It's difficult. And there's no guidance at the moment to understand how to translate into numbers these general and abstract concepts, how discrimination can be quantified, you know, all these all these issues. So what happened in practice, and I'm sorry not to give good news, what happened in practice is that risks that are assessed now are just cybersecurity risks. The risks that computer scientists can well control through equations and algorithms. You can do an equation, even for privacy enhancing technologies. You know, there's this whole new bunch of discussion. I mean, not new, but there's, it's like 10 years or 20 years that computer scientists are discussing about privacy enhancing technologies. Why they enhance privacy? Because they enhance anonymization and they avoid identification, but it's not the whole focus of data protection. Data protection is respecting fairness, transparency, autonomy, and you can't just protect fairness, transparency, and autonomy just avoiding cyber attacks. Cyber attacks are a part of the problem, but there are many other problems that even in physiological situations and not just pathological situations are problematic. My relationship with my boss, with my employer asking me for some data, there are no attacks in that. It's not a cybersecurity issue, but it's a power imbalance problem. And data protection is there to protect me. And risk assessments should take into account how my power imbalance can be exploited so that, for example, I give consent to some sensitive data that actually I wouldn't like to share. And so, again, risk assessment should look at the bigger perspective, the bigger approach. How could we do in the future? There are different ways to do that. First, guidelines from data protection authorities. Second, using the being creative, foresight studies, futurist studies. I don't know. There are different ways in which we could do that. Let's uh, start. <laughs> Let's start. I like that. One of the things you mentioned was that there are many different data protection regulations governing this space around the world. So different jurisdictions have different regimes. So in Europe, it's the GDPR, you mentioned Brazil and America and so on. They all are similar in some ways, but they also have potentially some underlying uh, fundamental, the philosophical background for them is, is slightly different. So therefore they, they play out differently. So the way I read the GDPR, it is very much connected to human rights and protection of the individual, which is a big part of the European soul across uh, these 50-odd uh, countries. I contrast it in some ways to, uh, for instance, China, where they are introducing a very strict uh, data privacy uh, regulation at the moment, very strict private enterprise, and there are more liberties uh, afforded to government use of private data. The Chinese government has themselves declared that data has become a national strategic resource and these laws are mandated to basically keep that information inside China that is stored on Chinese citizens. So that means that, for instance, 
multinational corporations cannot take data on Chinese citizens out of the country and so on. So in other words, we have clashes of regulations across jurisdictions and data is flowing very easily from one place to another, but the regulations are not transferable. They have borders. The, the digital environment doesn't necessarily have that. How do we coordinate and manage all this regulation across jurisdictions? And is that even possible? Well, and this is a $1 million question, but just trying to, to swim in this ocean of different uh, regulations. First of all, something I always tell my students is um, when you look at uh, existing uh, or proposed uh, laws, you should always wonder about the legal political traditions and the legal political reasons and the purposes, the political purposes of a new piece of legislation. And of course, you mentioned something very interesting. You mentioned China, so the Chinese data protection laws, very new, huh? proposed just a few months ago. Uh, U.S., with this fragmented protection, you have the California Consumer Privacy Act, then you have uh, uh, some other members, uh, American states have data protection laws, and then you have sectorial protection, right? You have children, you have health data, etc. How can we deal with that? First of all, we should have clear in mind why there are different protections. It's not just because you have different legal stories and legal uh, experiences. It's also because there are different goals. Why did China started to look at data protection more seriously? Because big techs were having more power than the state. And these forms of private monopolies are very problematic for China institutional system, for the structures of power in China. So in that sense, if uh, in Europe, for example, in Germany, that is one of the first country of data, regulating data protection in Europe, the fear was the big brother, uh, George Orwell's big brother. So the state that can control everyone. In China, the fear is about little brothers. It's about all big techs that could have more and more power, even though many of those big techs cannot uh, work in China but you have other uh, important companies working there. And in the US, the trigger was, again, avoid the power of federal state to have uh, excessive surveillance on individuals. But then after September 11th, the problem was security. And so data protection changed a lot in order to guarantee to the state, big power. And we know the Snowden scandal. And so uh, th that was also one of the triggers of the GDPR. So I am even confusing even more, but just to, to clarify that we have different reasons why there are different protections. How can we solve this fragmentation? So the GDPR tried to do that throw some extraterritorial rules. So having an extraterritorial impact. GDPR says, if you want to process data of people in European Union, if you are not, even if you are not a European company, you have to respect GDPR. This is called the Brussels effect or Brussels impact, right? And I think it was successful because now India, for example, proposed a GDPR-like legislation about data protection. A Brazil copied the GDPR. In Turkey, we have something copying GDPR. So 
if you want the real oil of Western countries, and in particular of European Union countries, you have to respect data of individuals. So there was this, uh, how to say, political positive contagion. Okay. Secondly, international agreements. And of course, this is a bit, uh, we have to be a bit cynical here. How come that the international agreement between European Union and United States about data protection was considered invalid for two times? The case against the safe harbor, so safe harbor agreement was considered invalid, and then even the privacy shield, uh, SRAMS 1, SRAMS 2 judgments. And now we have a new privacy shield. Why? Of course, political tensions around the world and international crisis in Ukraine made European Union and US closer. And this new, even probably higher energy link between, uh, energy provision link between United States and European Union helped the political uh, leaders to find an agreement even on data protection. So just to say, difficult to predict, I think international agreements are a way. There are also international standards like the Council of Europe uh, modernized convention on data protection, but it's difficult to navigate, of course. And there are many, 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 many historical events that can influence these things. So I'm sorry, I can't give an optimistic answer. It was a very hard question that I pulled out of my head there for you. I think the interesting bit is that we talk a lot about bias in data, but there's definitely also bias in uh, legislation and the creation thereof. And uh, it's all uh, coming out of a broader political environment. I think your example of the European-US relationship and how it's basically zigzagged a bit over the last, say, uh, 12 years or so is a very good example of that. Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com slash AI. Now back to the show. Jean-Claudio, you talk a bit about this nationalization of data almost because we can realize from this conversation that the data can be positive but they can also be a weapon in some ways in the hands of the wrong people or even nation states and will we see more and more nationalization of data more and more sort of a protection of that data akin to what china is doing across the world or do you think that is more of a chinese example Well, even in Europe, we tried to do a European Union-based cloud services just to avoid to give all our data to the U.S. And there are other examples. So, yeah, I think data can be a good political weapon, if we can say, or not weapon, but at least political power that uh, states could, uh, could use to, to, to influence uh, international policymaking. And I just made you the example a few minutes ago about, I mean, about this coincidence that the new agreement about a possible new privacy shield was highly, I don't know if encouraged, but at least uh, happened in the same days in which United States and European Union were closer because of international crisis with Russia. So, yes, I think uh, data can be, of course, uh, a political topic. It has been in the last years. It will be in the future. I don't think that 
And this is a bit, you know, sad, but I don't think that people, so that um, electors, consider data protection um, as important as other values. And this means that if you ask people, if you ask European people, do you want to give your data to US if in exchange they protect you in economic or military terms? Well, probably European people would say yes. So I think one key, if not solution, but at least one key step would be to work on education about data protection. So uh, help not only children, but also adults to understand that data protection is key for our democracy, for our dignity, for our autonomy. And so I think in that situation, data protection could become less vulnerable to international crisis. Yeah, and I think it's also a part of the population that doesn't even need military protection to hand over their data. They might just want the newest iPhone and that's uh, <laughs> enough to entice them to send data to America. Now, we're sort of uh, coming towards the end here and I have saved uh, one of the most important questions uh, for the end, uh, in my opinion. And I ask you because you are an educator in this space and as you've mentioned, you do uh, lots of education across different degrees and you're part of educating the future leaders of this space. So how do we educate our future business leaders, legislators, legal professionals to deal with these AI sustainability issues? What knowledge and skills should listeners on this show and others wanting to, to learn how to deal with this, what knowledge should they seek out? Oh, well, great question. First of all, the first knowledge would be learning other theoretical languages. Lawyers should uh, understand computer science discussion. And computer scientists should understand legal discussions. So first, it's a real problem of communication between two fields, right? We have different definitions, different notions, different principles, same words, ambiguous words. We should first start to understand them. A simple example, the notion of sensitive data. Well, computer scientists have their view, lawyers have another view. The notion of privacy. Privacy in computer science has a very technical meaning. In the legal discussion has a broader meaning. So first, I would say understanding each other's language, the other expert's language. Second, we should focus on risks. So a goal for education should be also changing the approach. Legislators, leaders, computer scientists, every powerful subject that will have the role of deciding about implementing a new technology, implementing AI in a, in a given context, should consider to involve vulnerable individuals in the decision-making involve, for example, impacted people, their representatives, vulnerable people, associations, experts about vulnerabilities and so on, involving them in a participatory design process. This would be key. And so just to summarize, 
interdisciplinary discussion and participatory design. I think these are the two challenges. For the first, we have to study more, we have to talk more, we have to write things together, we have to work together, lawyers and computer scientists, law for computer science and computer science for law. Secondly, participatory design, we should understand how to do that, but this is a mental approach. We should understand that every time we decide about the new technology, we are deciding about the impact of a whole community, and we should involve that community. Democratic process, accountability process, different methods, but at least let's do that. Yeah, and I think this is really what we all have to think about is that whenever we're designing something, even if it's a piece of code in the back end of a system, we're actually impacting someone's lives. So we do need to really appreciate and have this cross-functional knowledge of of that intent. It's very hard. It's very complex and it's very difficult, but it's the world we live in. And that is really a challenge for us to do. So listeners out there, have a go at it. Good luck. And don't forget Jean-Claudio's words that you've heard on here today. Now, Jean-Claudio, we've got two questions left. We're almost at the end. They're short questions. The first one I always ask guests on the show, which is to pay it forward. So who would you like to see as the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why? Well, difficult question because there are many, many wonderful researchers and uh, leaders about AI, regulation and so on. But perhaps I would suggest a dear co-author of mine, Professor Margot Kaminsky from Colorado Law School, because she tried to import European Union concepts and protections into the United States debate, but also because she tried to really elucidate some of the most complex concepts about uh, analytics, uh, regulation, and AI, like contestation, uh, human involvement, and so on. So I think she would be a great guest uh, at your very interesting podcasts. Wonderful suggestion. And I will definitely reach out to her after this show. So thank you so much for that. Really appreciate it. The last question is, where can people find out more about you and get a hold of your content? Yeah, sure. There is my website, www.gianclaudiomalgieri.eu. And uh, I try to have a blog there and also a list of publications and news about uh, activities. So yeah, that might be a good way to stay in touch. Yeah, so listeners, do go and check out Jen Claudio's website and I will put a link to it in the show notes so you won't have trouble finding it. Jen Claudio Malgieri, thank you so much for being on Leaders of Analytics today. It's been such a pleasure to listen to your knowledge and my head is spinning a little bit from all the things that I now need to go and learn. But I think that's a good thing because we're pushing the envelope here with the new knowledge and an underappreciated topic that needs more light of day in the world. So thank you so much for your time today. And I wish you all the best on your continued journey on research and educating our fellow citizens of the world. Thank you so much, Jonas. I learned a lot from your questions. So it was great and good luck with the podcast. It's great. 